Hey, hello everyone. Welcome to this uh, live cast. So glad that uh, all of you could show up here. Hi, uh, Scurvy Sam, Dana Fox, Lynn, see all you people here in the chat. When I look down, I'm, I'm checking the chat out here. And um, uh, we just have to talk about what's going on in these markets. And, you know, we had a rescue and this is going on and gold's going up and markets are gyrating all over the place. So uh, just thought we'd have a live cast around this. Remember, if you want to leave comments uh, and chats, I will see them because I'm squinting at the chat. So if you have a question, we can maybe get to them. Uh, so we'll try if we can. I got a few slides here to talk to you know me and as well. But first, uh, I have to introduce uh, my friend Stephen Flood, Stephen of Goldcore. Hey, thanks so much for being here with us. I know I'm asking you to be late for dinner and, and really appreciate you being here, huh? Yeah, you, you promised earlier that you would send my wife uh, takeout dinner uh, as, as thanks for having me home late. I believe I promised a Subway sandwich and I couldn't find one close enough to your house, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm, up, I'm upgrading you because that was far too cheap. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll take care. So Stephen, uh, hey, for people who don't know you here, before we get started, um, your background. I know you've got a lot of background in uh, finance, so... Take us through it real quick. So yeah, I'm the CEO of Goldcore. Um, and we're 20 years old this year. Prior to that, I worked in uh, Wall Street for Bankers Trust and also then Goldman Sachs. Um, and when I was in Goldman Sachs, I was part of a team in the equity derivatives uh, division. And we specialize in program trading, which is kind of large basket trading of stocks uh, internationally and also domestic US. Um, our clients would have been the large pension funds primarily in the States and, and, and in Europe as well. So um, I learned an awful lot about risk. I learned an awful lot about trading, uh, sales, um, the financial markets in general. And, uh, and then I brought a lot of those lessons back to Goldcore when I joined there in 2004. And then we've, uh, we grew the company from Dublin uh, to kind of an international uh, specialist in the precious metals markets now. Yeah. So... Um Hey, real quick before we dive in, how is I, I see gold and silver up really strong right at this moment. How how are the trading volumes today? Are people um, people diving in? Yeah, out the door, out the door. Um, it's it's very very uh, busy. Uh, we have an awful lot of people opening up accounts. A lot of people are looking at gold uh, afresh. Um, the price breakout is very very bullish. It's been in kind of a bullish pattern now for for some months, and it's been waiting we've been waiting for a breakout. Um, we figured it would it would pull back, but and it did. Um, but this news has really kind of underpinned the systemic risk credentials of gold uh, in a portfolio, and it's really kind of brought it to the fore again. So uh, it's a very, very busy day for us here. The, the team here are really, really busy. Yeah. Yeah. It, full disclosure for everybody listening, I am a member of Goldcore. I, I keep precious metals there. Stephen's company and Peak Prosperity, we get, we have a relationship. We get people special deals, and I do direct people to. Uh, Peak Prosperity Tribe members to Goldcore because I really believe in what you guys do and how you do it. So, um, and uh, it feels good. I got to say to have uh, what I call the jurisdictional risk spreading, right? So I, I've got some gold and silver now being stored in various parts of the world because I don't know what's going on anymore. Um, you know, so who knows where I want to be at some point in the future? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have um, thousands of clients all over the world. They feed in huge amounts of information into us. Um, we kind of share that that role of vigilance. Um, we don't know what the world, what the future holds. Um, and we always say, listen, you need to have precious metals in your portfolio, but you also need to spread it around in different jurisdictions because 
you're never going to be perfectly hedged. Uh, no one knows the future, but it's a good idea to have yep. that systemic risk hedge in your portfolio, whatever percentage yep. you think is appropriate. Absolutely. So uh, in the comments, Arsenal Rain says metals sold out online. I've been hearing this a lot. People have been um, having trouble getting access to them. And uh, Deuce Durden asks Gold Corp. No, that's Gold Core, C-O-R-E. Uh, so that's one of the reasons, though, that I, I like working with you guys, because you, you have access to, like, when, when various retail shops get sold out, you still seem to have access somehow. So that's, that's good stuff right there. Yeah. It's amazing. Like, we've, um, because we, we grew up uh, in Europe, in Ireland in particular, uh, we have uh, distribution agreements with uh, a lot of the world's mints um, and a lot of the refiners in Switzerland. Uh, and in Europe, and so we we can tap liquidity. We can tell you where the liquidity is. We can tap it very very easily, and um, and that's what we do. So we're plugged into yep. the Swiss refiners, and you know the the, the, the bars, silver bars, gold bars come right off the the, the, the line there. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Great. Hey Ryan, let's go to slides real quick because I want to just look at this now. So this this happened um, on the 9th of March. We saw the Silicon Valley Bank SVB was uh, designated on the 10th. Um, that was Friday, midday, very unusual, right? Usually they wait till the evening and they tell you Saturday or Sunday that something's gone. So we saw that SVB went down on, on Friday, but um, even before then too, we saw also a bank run on First Republic Bank as well. And that's just a run. Those are just people lining up out there. They've just caught the vibe. So Stephen, the way I'm interpreting this, um, by the way, First Republic is not yet gone down although <laughs> if we look at their stock price change today minus 65 percent clearly there's some uh, some some trouble here so these people were reading the tea leaves right um when it comes to this kind of stuff i advise everybody i am a shoot first ask questions later kind of guy if i see the stock price of my brokerage my bank take a huge tank i just i just pull my funds and and i leave and then later i figure out what's going on um is that the, the, to me, this looks like people have rightly potentially lost faith in the system. That That's low faith right there. That's what I see. What do you see? Yeah, and we've seen, we, we've seen this um, time and time before. Uh, the, the system, I suppose, uh, in normal trading environments, the system can work really, really well. But when you stress it uh, and you take interest rates from you know, essentially below zero, and you then move them up at such a pace, suddenly you find out uh, who's swimming naked as the tide goes out, as Buffett said. Yeah. Um, and, and I think what we're seeing right now is an awful lot of balance sheets being exposed um, because they have a lot of unrealized losses uh, on their books uh, where they've been parking depositors' funds. Um, and you have to realize as a depositor, you, you don't actually have your money in the bank. You've lent the money to the bank and the bank has lent the money on somewhere else or has placed the money in some other instrument. And then there's a transmission of risk. Um, and um, the risk transmits right across to the depositor, uh, but the benefits don't always transmit across. So the bank wins. Um, and so what we have here is uh, interest rates have gone up, uh, bonds have fallen. And what I find really, really fascinating about this time versus 2008 is that it's not so much the banks were investing in super high risk uh, um, uh, debentures and loans. They were invested in U.S. Treasuries, the most what's known as risk free uh, investments. 
and these these investments have fallen in value and have contributed massive losses on an unrealized basis, which means that they haven't actually sold out of these securities. They're being priced to the market price today, and that price says that they've taken huge losses. And in many cases, these uh, banks have a, a buffer. It's called tier one buffer, and they have their own capital. And in the case of uh, Silicon Valley, I understand that they had about 15 billion in losses, and they had about 16 billion in capital. So they got wiped out. So the market is now looking around and saying, well, who else has been on this, um, has, be, has been doing this and, and investing their deposits in with the US Treasury and who are sitting on losses? And the answer is quite a lot of banks are. Um, so the, the federal authorities are looking to shore up this process and, uh, and hopefully inject some sort of um, uh, security into the market by backing up uh, uh, Silicon Valley. But the question is, do they have the firepower to bail out the rest of the system. And the FDIC, I understand, uh, has issued um, information to the effect that there's about 650 billion in unrealized losses inside the system, uh, which is an extraordinary amount of money. Um, and so the question is, uh, what, what will happen to those losses? Are they gonna be backed up by the US government? Um, I, I, they've said that the US taxpayer is not going to pay for this, that they're gonna be paid for, these losses are gonna be covered by a levy of some description uh, in the case of Silicon Valley and another bank. But there's, the, the, there's a much bigger problem here. And the answers aren't apparent as to what the actual strategy is going to be. So as you say, there's a lot of questions. People are shooting first and asking questions later. Uh, and you can't blame them, I, I think. No, you, you can't. So um, so for, for people listening, um, the balance sheet of uh, any entity is uh, a very old established thing. and. Let me see if I remember this right. It's, it's assets minus liabilities equals shareholder equity. So that equity part, is that right? Yeah. Pretty so, much, yeah. And you have different, uh, different, different maturities on those assets and liabilities. Yeah, so that equity part, is that cash that they have? So when you say the equity gets wiped out, that, that piece that remains down there, often that's a non-cash position, right? It's, it's a, it's an, they, that's the so-called equity in the company, but in terms of what they need from a cash management standpoint, then you have to wander over to the cash flow statement and see where, where they're actually at. So I think Silicon Valley got caught out. They had they had equity, but they had like they couldn't raise any cash. Um, well, they... uh, yeah, I mean, my understanding is um, that they're actually quite a prudently run organization. They weren't lending recklessly to the marketplace. Um, they had quite a lot of assets. In fact, they only lent out about 40, 45% of their deposits were lent out into the market in loans. Uh, and the, 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 the additional uh, deposits were placed in the treasury market. And then when, when, when rates went up, the price of bonds went down. Uh, and as a result, they had bought at a level and then the price had fallen. And that mean, meant that those investments were, were had huge uh, unrealized losses. So they, uh, those losses have to be paid for first by their, their own equity. Um, and that's what's really happened here. So they got wiped out. Um, and then the question is, what other banks also have done the same thing? Because remember, you know, a lot of these banks, when after the financial crises, a lot of these banks were told, you know what, you need to have bigger buffers, bigger capital buffers, and you need to invest more wisely. And the, 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 uh, the thinking is, is that U.S. Treasuries are the safest place to, to, to invest. And those those securities have fallen uh, a lot, uh, as is the rest of lots, a lot of other bonds as well. 
So those losses are real. And they're also hiding in pension funds. They're hiding in insurance companies. They're hiding all over the world. They're hiding in foreign sovereign wealth. So one of the biggest losers in this is in fact the Federal Reserve. I think uh, my estimate I've heard there is that they've lost about 330 billion in treasuries and they only have 45 billion in actual capital. So they're one of the, the biggest losers in this. Now, they're not really, they don't trade on the market, but it just shows you the extent of losses that have been uh, incurred right across the system. I, I love it because I, I, I think the, the way the Federal Reserve, if I read this right, the way they were categorizing those losses you're talking about, they called them a deferred asset. Um, so that's, it's fun when you're the Fed, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> I wish yeah, I could call they, my they losses have, uh, a deferred asset. <laughs> yeah, that'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's because they're pre-deducting those from future remittances. So that is the taxpayer getting getting it in, in the shorts on that one, right? Because the yeah. Fed, it, anything beyond its X, beyond what it needs for its operating expenses, plus the 6% special dividend that goes to all the owners of the Fed, which by the way, isn't taxpayers, it's banks. Um, who are taxpayers, I guess, as corporations. But at any rate, once those are done, the, remit the remittances are the remaining balance of, of all their earnings from all those mortgage-backed securities, treasuries, all that, right? So so they've they've tanked all of that. So that usual 100 billion-ish a year in, in remittances to go back to the taxpayers, we're not gonna see those for years to come now at this rate, it looks like. What, what, I, what I think is, I mean, this this story has legs, like, like nothing we've seen in recent years. And my own feeling, we've talked about this before, is that there is a massive change globally in terms of what constitutes the reserve currency of the world. Is it going to be the dollar? And in the last mm -hmm. few months, you've seen so many countries now who have quite outwardly said that they're going to pay for their energy and in non-dollar currencies, uh, the yuan, the Chinese. And Big even news. more incredibly, just, just today in the last few days, the Chinese brokered a peace deal between the Saudis and, and the Iranian regime, which is unbelievable news. I mean, it puts them right up there. And we know that they want their currency to become a reserve currency. Um, it's, you know, they're, they're, they're going, the Saudis are going to be accepting yuan in, in, in exchange for oil. And, and if you read the press release from the Saudis, they're like, we only care about our own interests. And we have interests of the West and the East. And we're always going to operate in those interests. China is our largest trading partner. And you can't blame them. You cannot blame them for this. But it just shows you if the if the demand for dollars wanes because it doesn't it loses its reserve currency status and and the debt load and burden of the US government is so extraordinarily high and on the consumer, and you have interest rates going up and you have inflation biting at the heels of the Federal Reserve, and the markets are screaming blue murder. You have a recipe for uh, a, a serious, serious uh, period of, of dysfunction in the markets. Um, and I'm being very yeah. kind when I say that. <laughs> I know. You, it's almost a euphemism at this point. So uh, that thing. So so what did China do? Oh, they only got a diplomatic detente between the Shias and the Sunnis, right? You know, it's unbelievable. unbelievable what they just accomplished there. And people, if I could wave, Stephen, a magic wand and have people begin to understand something, it's that. That was, to me, uh, the biggest news of this past week, way bigger than these bankruptcies. Because really what's happening here, China now imports 14 million barrels a day of crude. The United States at its peak only hit maybe eight, maybe nine, and now it went all the way down to zero. But that's going to go back up again. So now the United States and China are going to be in competition for what's going to turn out to be an 
uh, an insufficient level of export crude. I don't care how much crude is made in the world. I care how much is floating on the oceans and going through pipelines to people who need it, right? So China just laid down a stake for that. Now, why, why, why would they put so much into Iran? Well, if you look at a map, you find out somewhere between China and all that tasty Middle East crude is this country called Iran. If they're going to put a pipeline in, it's yeah, that Iran's part of the deal. Yep. So if they're doing that, that means they're already thinking long term. And now it begins to make sense what's going on in Taiwan and all that other stuff, because China's super exposed to oil floating across the ocean to this little thing called the Malacca Strait, which is this tiny little geographic little thing that all the tankers have to go through. It's like the Strait of Hormuz. But the Strait of Malacca, it's tiny. It, obviously, China could not protect a choke point like that very easily on a naval basis. So I, I see all these big things happening. And, of course, the context of all that is the dollar, the petrodollar, and China at light speed undoing that particular um, piece of activity. So that is a, that's a really important current to keep on all this. So, oh, yeah. And if you, if you, I, I can just, again, no evidence for this, but imagine, you know, you let this turmoil this dollar hegemony uh contraction occur and you go okay and you let it run for a while and then you go to people go like okay we have this new currency it's a lot less volatile it's backed on you know on a, on a future on a future trade relationship with the world that's um really really comfortable and we're also going to back it by a lot of gold we're also going to put a huge amount of gold in there and we're going to make it stable and we're going to store that gold in other places around the world and and, and make it very, very safe for people. You know, at first, people probably could have shunned it a little bit because it'd be new, too new. But you can imagine that kind of taking taking hold over time, and more and more countries coming on board as a you know a mitigation. Um, who wants to hold dollars when you have all the evidence in the world that should you fall foul of the U.S. administration, there's every chance that these institutions will move against you and and freeze your reserves. And as a finance minister, you, you can't take that risk. I mean, and that's not crazy. That's that's a reality. And I think the argument is very strong now. So next few years, I think, are very, very interesting. I don't know what the U.S. response is, but I wonder from China's perspective, from a geopolitical, if you have your eyes on Taiwan, and the only reason you haven't gone is because militarily, you can't really see what's going to happen. You can't win that, that collision because the U.S. is still powerful. But if the U.S. has a, a huge um, contracting domestic economic problem and an economy, the argument to send U.S. troops halfway around the world to Taiwan to, to protect a little island um, doesn't really win. And you can imagine the political support will not be there for that, that the that domestic problems will trump uh, anything international. And I think that's probably the strategy that's being pursued. Well, um, I, I need to bring this back around to these bank failures real quick because it's a big fractal mess. Okay, so so one of the ways you get through a rough period is you have good leadership, right? Um, say what you will, but China's diplomatic coups of late have been impressive. Um, and so uh, not as impressive on the, on the United States front, but can I, just, can I just show you what sort of takes the wind out of my hopeful sails, like just... It's stuff like this. Um, let's see, where do I start? Uh, probably with this. So finding out that the CEO of, of Silicon Valley Bank was on the San Francisco Fed's board, um, and then they yanked him off. They yanked him off right away. But sure enough, if you go to the Wayback Machine, okay, so he's in there. So that means the San Francisco Bank board, board um, either was clueless or they knew about this and they just 
they, they weren't really caring that they had like uh, very poor risk management practices going on there, right? So, so that was part one. Um, part two is uh, when I look at say, oh, where can I put this? Oh yeah, here we go. So we also saw somebody, saw somebody ask earlier, um, Signature Bank also went down. Signature Bank goes down and then we find out that who's on the board, who's a director of the Signature Bank, but Barney Frank, he of the Dodd, Frank Dodd Act, right? Um, Barney Frank. So this is a guy who's writing the literal banking rules that led to this bank going going belly up. Uh, that's just total clown world action for me. Um, and so here he is, right? He's He earned a million bucks hanging out uh, here on the Signature Bank board. And it, you know, it failed. And now the FDIC has to cover all the depositors. And um, so that, that gives me less... This, this is just clown world kind of stuff. Um, yeah, and then uh, what else did I find out? Let me see if I put it in here. I don't know if I did. So it turns out HSBC is going to buy uh, SVB's assets for a pound. And it also turns out the UK, that on... The UK, the UK bank. Yeah, right? The, the, the bank that got caught pushing the, 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 the cash through the specially fitted uh, Mexican you know, uh, teller windows, right? Um, that HSBC, right? I mean, they're just, I mean, they've, they've been fined and caught with so many things. So, so those folks, right? Um, and you know who sits on their board? Comey, the former FBI official, right? Oh, wow. Comes out of the FBI, obviously, once you're head of FBI, you know, your next logical step is to serve on a bank board. Um, makes sense, right? Because the FBI is just known for its amazing ability to churn out business leaders. Um, so uh, so when I'm looking at this, Stephen, I just see, it just feels like a nest of corruption. Here, here's the bottom line with corruption. Businesses, small businesses, consumers, taxpayers all get hurt. The corrupt people seem to like do fine and pad their nests and carry on and nothing ever happens. So that's why, that's how I interpret when I showed that picture, Stephen, of all those people lining up right away. That's a that's to me is a legitimate response to finding out you live in a clown world where it's just unfettered corruption that never goes punished. So yeah. I think I think it's yep. um it's a really interesting point you make. Um but uh, to me that at the heart of this and you know in the future please God they're going to we'll learn from these mistakes and these issues and one of the things I hope we learn the lessons we learn is there's only maybe three degrees of separation between a lot of the people who move in these circles. Um, so everyone knows someone who knows someone knows the person that they are regulating. Um, and if you have such a, such a, a tight knit group, how can you possibly do your job as a regulator, as an enforcer, if the people that you're regulating are going to be paying your, your salary whenever you leave that regulatory job. And it just stands to reason that, you know, just for the sake of humanity, that these, these enormously important systems of government uh, are, are held to a much higher level. And, and I would actually argue, and, even, and maybe you don't agree with me here, but those regulators should be paid an awful lot of money, and so much money that they never have an incentive to ever go into the private sector. That they have a fantastic career, they're paid for, for their brain power, uh, for their ability to actually prosecute their brief, and we shouldn't go cheap on those packages that are offered. They should be every bit as, as attractive as the private sector can offer because ultimately they come out of low paying kind of um, um, uh, official jobs and then they get a book, uh, a book signing uh, contract. They go on a, on a, on a, um, uh, a, to a tour of 
speech tour all around the banks and they pick up millions and then they get jobs on boards and ultimately you're never going to prosecute your brief if that person's going to actually pay you so that's your ticket and i think it has we have to be realistic about this it's called yeah, revenue capture. it happens in every major industry it happens in the financial industry it happens in the pharma industry the insurance industry yeah. uh automotive everywhere yep no there's conflicts of interest uh, you know as uh, Charlie Munger, the right-hand man of Warren Buffett, said, you show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. It's easy. I mean, we're humans. We've known this since, like, you know, Spartan times, right? Like, so, but, so we have these incentives that are just really clearly lead to inappropriate behaviors, right? Um, and, and just to show you, but we do live in, to me, a clown world. So, Stephen, I'm a big fan of data, and I like words to have meaning, Right. And if we don't have shared meaning between words, things don't matter anymore. But look at this. Look how lame this is. Biden comes out, says U.S. taxpayers will not be responsible for losses from failed banks. Okay, so he comes out with all of that. And then immediately you got CNBC picking up the the torch saying Wall Street, not taxpayers. Wall Street's going to pay for the SVB and signature deposit relief plans. What? No, it's the deposit insurance fund run by the FDIC that's going to make up those losses, right? And so the, the deposit insurance fund is a, is a tag that goes out and hits every bank. And then what do those banks do? They pass those costs on. So today I learned I'm not a taxpayer. As far as I'm concerned, that's just like one, it's not even super derivative. You don't have to be super subtle. It's like, here's where the money comes from. And that money ultimately comes from me, right? Whether they hide it or say, you know, it's going to, First flow from me to the treasury and then to the bank, or it's going to flow from me to the bank and then back to the banks. It doesn't matter. We all know who's paying for this, right? I mean, yeah. If you put a levy, if you put a levy on the financial system, it's the customers of the financial system, i.e., everybody, who's going to pay for that. So it is a taxpayer's. It's a tax through stuff. It's an indirect tax on transactions. It's not Wall Street paying for it, guaranteed. It's going to be the average mom and pop out there uh, in higher bills. And again, there are so many examples of uh, monopolistic behavior um, within the financial industry in the states where people pay huge amounts of money for you know everyday transactions like credit cards, which are unbelievably high on any international comparison. So it's um, it's very worrisome when I when I read that. And I I can't believe that they that they even released that statement and thought that it would pass muster with the public. I mean, like they must think everybody is an idiot. Uh, I don't. I, they do. I just don't understand how how they thought that would that would be okay. The, well, well, they do, and so it, it is sort of got that clown world. You know, like listen, if you don't have any, clearly we don't have adults in charge, or if we do, they clearly think we're idiots, right? And but they've shown that over and over again in all sorts of different places, right? Um, you know, when they're safe and effective, and you know all their different statements that they were out there throwing around, none of which turned out to be true, and and we're supposed to have the memory of a goldfish, right? You can't. Didn't you just last week say this, right? But we even saw this in congressional hearings where Matt Taibbi was exposing the NSA and the government colluding with the FBI, with Twitter to like suppress free speech, right? And we had this uh, representative uh, actually ask him twice for his sources, but she said, you know, tell us where you got the, the information from. He said, no. And then a minute later, right, uh, Jim... Jim Jordan is saying, I can't believe that you just asked for his sources. And she said, I didn't ask for sources. Like, no, you just asked who gave him the information for his story. That's called a source. Like, we can't have a yeah. shared conversation because we can't even agree what the word sources means, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the well, idea I mean, that we're... It, 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 
was gonna, sorry, I was going to say, if you, if you if you look back, this this rewriting of the, the rules of communication and language, we have language wars. You you know, if you don't like the question, change the rules in terms of how you how you ask questions and label people if they ask what you perceive as an inappropriate question. Um, and and this is happening across the world. It's 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 a it's a very scary development recently because you know you know when truth you know truth dies in the dark and and yeah. uh, and it's really really important that people fight for that right to to speak and ask questions and it's okay to be wrong as well and be mistaken yep. but i think it's uh, that cancel culture drives me crazy um it's yep. really 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 yeah. scary well i agree and, and so here's the conclusion so people often ask at a time like this all right so what do i do about this right are we just going to complain about this and i'm like no no here's the point you want to understand how the world seems to be working you want to understand the rules of the game even if it's rigged and broken so that you can have a chance of not just being a helpless victim to what's going on i can't do anything about fed printing i can't do anything about inept leadership of banks but i can take my funds and my wealth out of that system so for since 2008 when i first started doing this um, i've been recommending to people to get hard assets gold silver land um, trees real estate oil, gas, and I've been there because at least those are things I understand. And if you, if you get involved in the right relationships, you can have a, um, you, you can understand it. Like if you can't, like here's my rule of investing. If I can't understand it at all, it's not for me, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. so at any rate, I've been recommending. As Buffett said, simple and understandable. As Buffett said, it has to be simple and understandable to, to invest in. Absolutely. So, I mean, everybody listening to this, this isn't financial advice, but for your own education, um, everybody, I think, ought to have a core holding of gold and silver, right? Just And that's in your hot little hands. You can get it, you, you know, it's somewhere nearby. It's your insurance fund. You got to have that. So so here's here's how I, <laughs> here's my approach to investing, Stephen. It's, um, will this help me sleep well, better at night? You know, it's kind of like a I don't really, I don't worry about the world that much for myself. I worry about it for a lot of other people. I worry about who's unprepared and not ready for, for this stuff that's coming. You know, if I could dig through all the FDIC stuff and show you that they have just a 1.2% of, of actual deposits are insured through their fund. It's not a big number, right? Um, you know, and sure, they'll change rules and just print money if they have to. I have every confidence in that. But, but that's going to take our purchasing power and destroy it. What, what's your experience with inflation in Ireland right now? So um, most people in the West don't really understand what inflation is. And they haven't mm -hmm. experienced it in their, in their lifetimes. The older generation have a uh, memory of it from the 70s um, and, and the 80s. And the, the problem is, is that the inflation we have today is not demand-driven. Demand it's very much monetary. So it's because they have been basically printing money and they started a policy of printing money back in the global financial crisis. And they started a, a policy of active management of the economy with interest rates um, and, and guiding the economy. And they've also had a policy of involving, involving themselves in the markets directly to create a, 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 a veneer of normalcy. And so, we, and they have the the media are very much in 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 lockstep with this as well. So it's a it's a very unhealthy relationship. Uh, the government should never be involved in the marketplace, and they shouldn't be setting interest rates, and they should, certainly shouldn't be printing money, and the media should hold them accountable. 
Um, these are just basic truths, um, but all have been have been um, have been you know changed of late. So what do I think of inflation? I think inflation is probably one of the most dangerous dangerous economic conditions you can have. Not so much at the beginning because actually you look you look like you're doing okay because your 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 assets are rising in value. Your um, you have savings maybe from 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 previous uh, situations and uh, you're doing okay. You're making some profits if you're in business. You know your your actual margins have grown and you can see the margins have grown in the S and P five hundred tremendously leading up to this recent. Uh, issue our situation so uh but it's what happens over the longer term when real wages start to fall and the the average man on the street realizes that his monthly wage does not cover his expenses and then when they start going to grind and they don't buy that car they don't go on holiday they don't buy that that handbag or whatever that smartphone they suddenly uh the, the economy takes a hit and then you have job losses and then people go further to ground and it feeds off itself and it, it basically creates demand destruction at an un unbelievable level. And then those assets that were rising start to fall. And then the system resets slowly but surely, very, very painfully. And in the worst cases, it goes into, into a depression, a depressive depression cycle. Um, and it's, and it's, um, it's very, very dangerous and it can last an awful long time and it could lead to a lot of political unrest and, and some very nasty people get into power and then they do very nasty things and they typically blame everybody else but the actual monetary system um, before it actually, uh, people find the truth. So inflation is exceedingly dangerous, and I don't think the officials in in Washington or the Fed are this. I don't think they. I don't think that. I think. I think that they understand this. I think economic history is very, very um, uh, obvious on this point. So inflation should be avoided at all costs. But what cost, and what is the price that they pay? Um, interest rates should be an awful lot higher, arguably, um, and then. When you, and you've seen interest rates have moved up only modestly, modestly, uh, and you can see that the 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 pressure it's putting on the financial system already. And I think it's just the, the tip of the iceberg, um, to be honest. I wonder now next week will the Fed start to change the language and start talking about interest rate reductions, and then will the market go off on a on a huge um, uh, a huge uh, buying binge, um, and then then we'll continue on for another cycle. I don't know, but I do suspect that. Uh, inflation is probably much more dangerous than a few banks going bankrupt and the system resetting. Uh, over the longer term, I think an awful lot of people will be affected by inflation. Great. Uh, so Finbear asks here, so do you see the Fed's decision related to what you just said there to open the money floodgates as a green light for risk on investments? Looks like it to me. A risk on investment for people out there is we would move, say, out of safety, which would be bonds, and we'd move into risk on assets, which would be stocks typically, but other things as well. So, so if we look at this, um, this is today's action. Uh, I think this is Wall Street puts out a little crybaby action and the Fed response. Both stocks and bonds up strong this morning. This may have changed by the time we're talking about this now, but, but that's, a, that's a both. Right. So this is kind of a to me, this is this is the kind of stuff, Stephen, I saw in 2008, 9, et cetera. When the Fed just says they're going to start printing more money, then everything goes up. Right. Stocks go up. Bonds go up. It's like, a, hey, why can't we have one of everything? You know, um, so is this yeah. how do you interpret yeah, I wouldn't this? Take too much, yeah, I, I think you have to be cautious, taking too much signal on, on, in, in the days around a, a, a situation. Uh, we mm -hmm. need to see how the cards uh, lie in, over the next uh, few days and weeks to see what the trend will be. Uh, but you, you can also add gold is up, uh, you know, is up as well. So everything is up. 
um, and uh, yet people are looking for cash. Uh, so it's it's an interesting one. Yet the banks, some bank stocks are tanking as well. So there's a lot of contradictory signals coming out of the market today. You probably have That's the market. True. You probably have the, the Fed proxies um, also involved in the market, kind of trying to drive that narrative um, as as they want yeah, to okay. be. Um, it, it, I, I woke up. I woke up to this on my screen first thing this morning. Look at all these halts of of financial stocks and banks halts right yeah. that that was pretty that was it, not it, that was that was ugly it is and what, what's really interesting is, is that the um the the unrealized losses just reported by a lot of these banks have been out there it's not it's not a new thing they've been out there for quite some time uh the market ignored them um and didn't really understand them and i think that's actually a big part of it there's an awful lot of market participants who haven't really seen uh, an interest rate rising market environment. They haven't seen it. Uh, they don't know it. They don't recognize it. They don't even know what a what a, um, a contraction looks like. They just only know in a bull market. Um, you know, it's so it's it's a it's a very it's a perfect storm if you ask me um, at the moment. Yep. So Stephen, quickly while we have people's attention. Um, if you come through this link, folks, uh, that's https slash slash peak dot fan slash goldcore. You come to that page there at, at Goldcore site. Uh, you see my smiling face there. You just put your name, email, phone number. Um, somebody will will talk with you. Can you tell people just real quickly what Goldcore does? And, and I, I think you're special. And I love the idea of segregated gold storage as a concept. There, really important to me. Yeah. So, so as I say, we're, we're 20 years old now in October, and, and we specialize in precious metals. Uh, we have about $330 million in assets around the world that we manage for clients. And we've, so we've been around a long time, and we're, we're very well trusted. Um, and essentially, if you, if you want to have precious metals in your portfolio, uh, you can buy them from us. We'll ship them to you. We'll store them for you. We have a network of vaults around the world. They're all non-bank, and the, the standard storage product is, is segregated, allocated, which means you buy a particular... Um, gold bar and it's in a particular location and it's not mixed up with anybody else's gold bar and you can also log into the Goldcore platform and see the valuations and you can buy and sell your, 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 your assets but we also allow you to access the vaulting company system independently of Goldcore and put in your account number there and you actually see your bars and your serial numbers and all your assets held uh, as per their system real time so you can check what's in, what's in uh, Salt Lake City, you can check what's in Zurich you can check what's in Singapore um, and we have a, and Dublin and London and Frankfurt as well. So you can spread your assets around. Uh, nothing's held in our balance sheet. It's your asset. It's like having your car parked in our car garage. We know where it's been, so we'll buy it off you right away if you want to sell it. Uh, and you pay a very, very modest storage charge. And we have a special relationship with Peak Prosperity. If you go on their website, uh, the Peak Prosperity website, you'll see a link there as well. Click on that, and uh, and then and uh, it's it's very very easy. You can sign up in literally twenty minutes. And our customer care is absolutely second to none. Um, we have a four point nine star out of five. I think uh, Chris, you can you can you can vouch for it as well. I can. Uh, we're very client focused, and we don't we don't pay commissions to sales staff. Uh, it's all about customer service and us doing well as a company with our clients. Yeah, fantastic. So um, I'm a big believer in it. And again, remember, I'm a shoot first, ask questions later kind of guy. Can we talk about this real quick? 
Credit Suisse. So, yeah. so Credit Suisse has been on my radar for probably six months. I've been tracking it, telling people, uh-oh, I didn't like their equity position. Uh, their financials look like a wreck to me. Um, I didn't like the client outflows, but mostly something I track is something called a credit default swap. So for those people who don't know what that is, um, you, Credit Suisse has bonds that are outstanding. Stephen, let me know if I'm doing a good job of this, but uh, they have bonds that are outstanding. And let's say the bond yields 5%. Well, I could hold that and I'm getting 5%, which feels good, but I'm nervous about the company so I can buy insurance on that bond. What's it going to cost me? Well, it's going to cost 446 basis points, 4.46% to insure that. So now that bond actually in the market is not worth a bond that's priced out at 5%. It's worth a lot less because why would I pay 5% for a bond that I have to pay 446 basis points or 4.46% to protect? Um, so, so this is a measure of stress in a company. We, this goes back uh, 20 years, and um, we have not seen stress this high in this bank before. A, did I do an okay job explaining that? B, what happens, Stephen, if Credit Suisse gives up the ghost like it looks like it might here? Yeah, um, it's it's interesting. I think uh, all of the bank, the entire bank sector is being reevaluated right now because the unthinkable has happened. U.S. Treasuries, the risk-free investment, has now an enormous amount of risk. And I don't even know where that lets you, where you go with after that, because what, 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 other, what other country, sorry? What do you mean risk? Are you talking about the default risk because because of yeah, like, you know, the debt ceiling? I, I, don't know what the credit defaults, I don't know what the credit default swap bond U.S. Treasuries are as a bond, but, um, but, it, but you know, it, the graph probably doesn't look dissimilar to what you're showing there. So the, 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 the risk of default uh, and the, the, the market for those securities has fallen just as it, as it, as it has probably for Credit Suisse. Um, and what does that leave you? Because years ago, that was the risk-free option. So the entire financial system is under huge stress and stress and the fundamentals that underpinned uh, balance sheet um, allocations in the past are now called into question. And the pension funds are heavily invested in in, in um, U.S. Treasuries, and we also have uh, geopolitically China and obviously Russia and other places would love nothing less than to have a U.S. default uh, on the books. Um, so it's it's interesting. Uh, Credit Credit Suisse has had huge problems for an awful long time, as you know. Uh, so has uh, other banks as well. Um, and if this if this if the system generally starts to sell off, and they were already close to the to the edge, you know. It doesn't. It doesn't really spell spell um, good fortune for the future for them. So, I would say that uh, it's it's an interesting one to watch. But as 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 a rule is, you know, you spread your money, you diversify. Uh, precious metals uh, are that contingent investment. You know, they come into their own in times of stress and and, un, and uncertainty. And the world has become a very uncertain place. Um, and and I think it will continue to be so for some time. Well. For me, uh, I hold gold and, and silver, but sometimes people say that like it's one word, gold and silver. They're two words to me, and I hold them for entirely different reasons, um, as well as other hard assets. Gold to me is the only financial asset I'm aware of that I can hold that is not also somebody else's liability. It's a really weird option value that exists because of that, because it exists solely as an asset if you hold it in your possession, right? Um, so that, that's very odd because, you know, even a federal reserve note, a hundred dollar bill is the feds liability, my asset, right? 
the treasury bond I hold, my asset, government's liability, right? So on and on and on. So gold has that weird capability of just existing as a monetary asset, you know? Um, and, and so that's part one. Part two is, Stephen, can, can you help shed any light? Because I'm, I'm a, you can tell, I'm a student of things. I dig into things deeply. I, this is weird, but I can find the, the thing that is most impenetrable to me is trying to figure out how much gold actually is owned by whom in the world. I can't figure it out. It's, it's held more tightly yeah. than nuclear secrets, it seems, right? Like, how much is in the LBMA and how much belongs to who and which has been hypothecated and rehypothecated, meaning borrowed and encumbered and reborrowed and reencumbered down a chain. How much actually exists? How much is in, you know, the GLD trust? Literally unencumbered as a, as a sole asset. I, I've, I, can you help shed any light? I, could, I have not been able to figure this out. Well, the reason is because um, uh, a lot of it happens OTC, over the counter. It's privately traded uh, between different counterparties. It also has a huge geopolitical uh, uh, aspect to it. But the recordable reserves of gold, uh, i.e. the ones traded and held by exchange-traded funds uh, and ETCs as well, uh, and the ones that are held by certain central banks are recorded. Um, the, um, but the, those reportable reserves have increased significantly over the last 10 to 15 years. You can see that. Um, um, gold, char gold Charts R Us is a great service. You can go on there and you can actually get some great statistics. Um, but in, in other countries such as, um, you know, less friendly to the West, such as China, uh, they have been acquiring gold, well, through the back door, a lot of people have said, um, and have been accumulating gold and haven't been reporting all of their reserves. And so they do so for a whole lot, a host of reasons. Um, they, they don't want, they want to control the narrative uh, and they don't want someone else to control the narrative. So my understanding is there's probably more out there than we think. They reckon that the above ground reserves are about 180,000 180, tons uh, of gold um, uh, in, 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 in the world. And that would equate to about 22 meters cubed of gold. So you could put it onto this, into the middle of a tennis court. Um, you could put it under the Eiffel Tower. Uh, there's a very, very little gold in the world as a, as a physical weight, as a mass. Um, that's what makes it really, really interesting. It's also incredibly difficult to mine. Uh, it takes an awful lot of energy. You have to move literally a mountain uh, and a huge, do a huge amount of work just to get a little bit. And that makes it a really interesting form of money. In fact, I would argue that it's the only form of money that we can truly rely on because it's it's independent of man as you said it's in, it has no other liabilities no one else's liability you buy a house you need a renter how you rent and the value of the house is dictated by the rental yield you get you buy a stock it's cash flow you buy gold it costs you money and yet it's valuable so it goes it stands in direct contradiction to every other asset class out there and when you buy it and i think this is really important you give your dollars you get gold you have a form of money that's independent of everybody and everything, and it's always valuable. And so I think I call that financial sovereignty. You actually take financial sovereignty, which mm -hmm. you do with that as your business. And it's a, I think it's a really important thing for investors to get their head around and think about and dwell upon. Yeah, I'm, I'm big this year as I'm putting a lot more back into helping people achieve financial freedom, which has a number of components to it. But financial freedom to me is when, you're, when your financial assets that you've accumulated are safe and are creating passive income sufficient to meet your basic needs, 
right? Whatever, and everybody has different levels of basic needs. So, so that's an individual conversation. There is no magic number, but, but to have that sovereignty as part of that is really important, um, particularly in a world where I don't know where the risks are anymore. I don't, I don't like that. I mean, I remember, so I, I went down this huge rabbit hole, Stephen. I was trying to figure out what do, what's really going on with derivatives. You know, we hear there's quadrillions of them, and what are they? And it's an arcane world. They're basically legal contracts. I discovered they're they're not a thing. They're a big ass piece of paper that you know, um, a binder of paper that lawyers have sort of hashed through, and 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 they interlink with each other, and they're very complicated. Bottom line was this: I was trying to just answer the question, what is the actual net derivative exposure of J.P. Morgan? I did this like in 2009 or 10, because I'm weird that way. They have this annual report that's this thick, and they have every table in there, and I found out that they're. $300 billion of derivative exposure, notional, which we don't actually know what the, it means you know, at the, at the actual value level. But, but they said, oh, here's how much we think our exposure to that is. And it was literally a paragraph way deep on like page 200 where the, the bank executives had just decided what it was. They were allowed to like sort of like use their, I forget what the term was, their expertise uh, to sort of decide. This was one of the biggest items in this whole giant document and it was a single paragraph, and it basically was, it was the equivalent of this, right? Yeah. I don't like yeah. not knowing, you know? But I well, couldn't I mean, figure it this out. Is what's, what's, yeah, what's really important about, you know, an open market is that you have transparency. Um, you know, you have people who will make a bid and an offer, um, and they'll have a spread, uh, and you can see, and you can also um, check their financial credentials as well in terms of as a, as a, as a market making participant but in the derivatives world uh, it's as I say it's over the counter so you and I could start have a derivative contract right now on the price of gold and mm -hmm. we could link it in with the price of oil um, and you know I could pay you the next six months worth of return and you could pay me after that and we can make it as complicated as we want and what's really hard is is how do you uh, how do you create transparency in that sort of system because you know, it's 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 usually derived from a risk mitigation strategy from a customer that the bank has an industry that needs to to you know manage exposures and it's customized, it's bespoke, and then they try to net things off. Um, and but we don't have any actual real exchange. We don't have a standards yeah. set of standards. There are like certain contractual standards for enforcement. There's like international agreements, like I think they're called ISDA agreements, and they they help counterparties police the actual relationships. But in terms of understanding the exposure, it's really, really difficult. And what I find quite disconcerting is, is that these exposures are very much priced and valued by the executive or some sort of unknown uh, mechanism at the bank, at the institution. And but what's really important is how do you assess that bank's balance sheet and financial health if you can't understand its liabilities uh, and you can't really understand its assets because it might have derivatives on both sides. So how do you actually really understand what the actual the net position of the bank is? And a lot of banks actually trade uh, very near to book value, uh, which is interesting. And it's always been a major question in, in financial circles is why is a bank that's making so much money trading like it has a huge amount of liabilities? And I think the answer is because of the derivative exposure creates a huge oh, uncertainty and un unknown around that bank's hmm. future. Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, that could be so one of the something I haven't liked about derivatives is it's created the appearance as if we've taken all risk and ejected it into outer space. 
And yeah. to me, derivatives really possibly, and this is just guessing, represent a form of insurance that works perfectly until you need it. But it's like any insurance, right? There's no insurance um, set of to policies in the world that can work if everything goes wrong, right? You know, we insure our houses against disasters, but if the hurricane comes and levels all the houses, the insurance is bust, busted, right? It doesn't doesn't work out yeah. anymore. So, it. But but you know, when I see that like little tiny, so one of the things I was doing in prep for this, looking at all these banks I showed you that were halted. I ask, what's the derivative exposure of these banks, right? And all I can see is their notional values. But these little tiny banks, Stephen, have 10, 50, 100, 200 billion dollars of derivative exposure. You know, and you, you can't make sense of that because, again, we don't know the nature of the contracts and how complicated they are and how they net out and who they're with. Can't know any of that. But it's just everybody's using them. And you remember, I don't know if you, I'm old enough to remember that like Orange County, California, would routinely get sold some bizarre product that they didn't understand from Wall Street. You know, Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch would come up. My old, my, yeah, the first bank I ever worked for was Bankers Trust, and they were involved in a huge lawsuit against or in, with Orange County with options contracts, I think it was. And it was a, a massive story in the day because bankers actually invented the uh, options cr- uh, pricing um, methodology, uh, Black and & Scholes, and, uh, and they made a huge amount of money selling these option contracts to all these... Um, these states, um, and yeah, it blew up and it was a huge lawsuit. Yes, you were, you had a front seat on that, but but yeah, it's kind of like it, out, again, it was these, well before my time. I think I was maybe five years old or ten years all right, old when all it right. happened. <laughs> but the point is, I mean, there, there are these things that that worked great, and until they were actually needed, and then they sort of blew up on people. And 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 uh, just to put a little exclamation point on that story, wasn't it wasn't it Shoals himself? who got involved in long-term capital management and smartest guys in the room. And this was LTCM blew up in 1998 because they had these can't lose bets on, on bonds and uh, it blew up and they lost. And um, so even the smartest guys in the room sometimes get burned by this stuff. I, you know, Scholes himself, I believe. Or was it black? A lot, a lot of the time I think it was Scholes. Um, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't be banning derivatives. I just think that the regulators need to probably make bring as much transparency to the process as possible and some sort of standardization so that we can understand what those risks are because the market needs to be able to digest information and price accordingly uh, but you're right we just don't know i mean like a derivative is, is can be fantastic if i if i'm a farmer and i'm meant to invest in a hundred thousand mm-hmm. acres of, of of land and i want to buy a weather derivative so if the rain doesn't fall like i thought it would it'll pay me money because my farm's not going to produce and it'll help protect the financial future it's, it's a form of insurance and that makes all the sense in the world um but it's it needs to be transparent for those financial institutions who are making a market so that we can price them accordingly and as you say we just don't know um maybe some people know but i don't think the regulators know and i don't think you you know the market knows well my, my sense is and, and we can close up with this is that there's a lot of unrealized losses kicking around in the system and i'll tell you why i think that particularly for europe um at one point the most astonishing chart I ever saw was that there were $19 trillion worth of negative yielding bonds in the system. And I still don't totally have my head wrapped around what a negative yielding bond is, because let's say you're Germany and you want to borrow money from me and you say, hey, uh, you have to pay me <laughs> for the right for me to borrow money from you. Like, my, like I said, I have a hard time with the concept, but let's just back it up. Somebody owned 
19, somebody was the owner of those, proud, proud owner of that $19 trillion, right? A bunch of somebodies. People yeah. owned that. They're clearly not worth $19 trillion anymore. I'll just say, let's be generous and say there's only been a 5% haircut. Where did that trillion dollar of losses go? Wow. Um, I mean, like, it's, it's, again, it's probably not marked to market. It's not, they haven't actually priced them. They're an unrealized. Um, and I, my understanding is a lot of these um, hold to maturity in uh, uh, assets that they hold don't actually have to be priced uh, on a real-time basis. So they don't actually have to disclose a lot of these these losses or realize them. So um, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, I, I, to me again, going back to what we said at the beginning, when you have the authorities setting the interest rates for the marketplace and they do so for political purposes and not for, for risk mitigation or, or understanding of risk. Because remember, an interest rate should, should reflect the risk in the market, it should reflect the competitive environment, it should reflect the, the demand of depositors for a return, uh, and all of these other factors. It should not re- it should not reflect the political appetite for a, a market sell-off. I mean, that's what they've done. They've politically managed these rates uh, since the 1980s uh, and 90s on, a, on, a, on an incredible basis. So I would say that the, that the people wearing this risk is the pension holders, uh, and they're seeing it in their pension returns. Uh, and we'll see it in those pension returns being reduced drastically. Um, and, and, and you also have a lot of these um, financial institutions who make an awful lot of money off the back of these transactions because they they are they, they work with the authorities in many respects as well. So it's it's a, an unholy alliance, and I think the, the, the at the end of the day, the, the pensioner pays. Yeah, well, we certainly saw that with the... Um with the UK pension system, when the gilt uh, market went upside down, they got caught on margin calls that I think was last I saw was 100 million pounds or something like that in a yeah. 1.5 trillion pound system. I mean, big, nasty losses in a system that shouldn't really have any and shouldn't have been forced into that position in the first place. So we can say, oh my gosh, those crazy pension managers, what were they thinking? Going long on duration and you know levering up and all that. But, but actually they shouldn't have had to. Right. I'm convinced that the biggest sin of the central banks is thinking that they deserve to set the price of money. That's the interest cost. The markets should always yeah. be setting the price of money, always. period. Full stop. You yeah. Know? yeah. I mean, like the and if you look at the, the, the sovereign bond yields, um, you know, I think France and Ireland uh, are, are very closely aligned with Germany, you know, which says that the default risk of France and Ireland is similar to Germany, which is crazy. You know, I mean, like, that's nuts. And most of these bonds are being bought by central banks. I mean, so they're setting the yields at the, at the price point. Um, I think a lot of people find the bond market just very, very quizzical and confusing. And it's not based on any fundamentals anymore. It's based on political, you know, trade wins and, and, and what's required in terms of, the, you know, at the president going out and saying, you know, Everything's fine here. Move along, everybody. It's uh, no one's going to pay anything, and you won't know who's paying. And um, hmm. there's no suckers in the room. And um, off you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, not good. No, no. And th- and then and thank you so much for bringing in the the China, Iran, Saudi Arabia axis that's going on there because this is a really big deal. Uh, not just geopolitically and how it pretends potentially to you know various. Um, geopolitical events but but from a monetary standpoint i'm old enough Stephen, that that every single time in my lifetime when some country has attempted to 
break the petrodollar, it's not gone well for that country. Um, let me just, oh, that's my own euphemism, okay? Let me just slide that one in. Yeah. Um, but China's big enough to be able to get away with it. And so, so the, for them to have pulled in two of our former deep satellite countries, because most people don't remember this, you know, Iran's been on our demonization list for a long enough people might have forgotten, but we were good friends with Iran for a long time. We were training their military pilots and, you know, with the Shah, we had like very deep relationships and it was all good for a long time. Um, not since the revolution, but um, this is a big deal because China's now brought them into its sphere of influence and, and they're no longer in our sphere of influence. Um, and uh, earlier, Deborah left a comment on here saying that she works with the Saudis and that, um, and that they only do things in their own interest and when it makes sense, right? So... <laughs> So it's it speaks speaks loudly that that particular moment. I think people should pay more attention to it. I, I actually read that today that press release, Prince Saud. Um, I actually thought it was really great. It was refreshingly honest. You know, I think it was um, uh, General de Gaulle in France said, you know, countries don't have uh, alliances; they only have interests. Um, mm. And and it's true. But at least the Saudis actually said it and it's so refreshing because most western countries would just talk oh but to, to talk both sides of their mouths and, and and you know it's like we care about the people we want to help those people over there and it's really they're just looking for energy security or market security or market access and um and, and, and an alliance of some sort um to help them achieve their goals so it's uh it's great to see I, I, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying that the U.S. dollar's days are over or the U.S. economy's days are over. I actually think I believe in anti-fragility. You ever heard that that book, that term? Yep. Nassim Taleb yep. had a book called. And, and you know what? What can hurt you and, and affect you makes you stronger. And and I hope that that the, the 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 rest of the world react and improve their systems uh, in a way that actually works for the people. Um, and maybe I'm completely naive in saying that, but you know, if China brings out a new currency and they start taking over the world's economy and, and, and setting setting the rules, I don't think that would necessarily be a good thing. Um, and maybe what it'll make the response will be something uh, from the states and from something from Europe that will be a much better marketplace economy um, where the world can turn to. So maybe some good will come from this uh, this this situation. I don't know. Uh, I hope. Yeah. Well, I've been watching the markets long enough, so we will close with this because I know I got to get you off to dinner. Um, but I'm looking here. This is unusual to me to see to see gold up 50 bucks, right? That's, yeah. that's that big green square there. That's an unusual move for gold at 2.7 percent. There's sort of an informal 2 percent rule on gold as far as, you know, that's the way I've interpreted it. Like no more. Thou shalt not pass more than 2 percent. Right. That's a pretty big move. Yeah. How do you interpret that? It's huge, yeah. Technically, it's also really good. It's bounced off some interesting technical levels. Um, again, I would want to wait a few days to see what holds. Um, I would, I would be careful to take any signal on a day's move. News is being uh, digested right now. Um, if it's such that, like the, the next big news headline will be, what will the Fed do? Are they going to start mm -hmm. signaling a pause in rate rises and maybe even a cut should circumstances warrant it? They're the type yep. of phrases that will come out and the market will take signal from that. And gold will take signal from the dollar, which takes signal from the market. Um, so, yeah, let's let's wait a few days to see what, what, what comes of it. Um, but right now, we have a lot of motivated buyers uh, coming into the market. 
uh, and they probably are buying today because they see this is a very, very reasonable price to get into. And I would not, if I, if somebody does not own precious metals yet, and they're worried about the price being up two and a half percent today, and they want to hold off a little bit, that's fine. There's a rule that we, we talk to clients about is try not to time the market because you're buying a tactical asset here. And it's probably more expensive to not have it at all than to have it at, a, at the wrong price. And if you're worried about buying it at a high point, then maybe put thirty, you know, a third in today, a third in next month, and a third in the month after that, and average your way in. And if it goes up from here, you're going to look like a superstar that you bought some today low. And if it goes down from here, you'll look like a superstar that you bought more in the future at a lower price. So don't get caught up in the emotion of the market. Cost average your way in. Look at it as a tactical allocation. It's something that you're buying as a contingent asset. Should the should the wheels come off the bus, you'd be very glad you had it, and you can um, you you can you, you won't be panicking in a in a really super down market. And that's really its role is to kind of calm you down uh, as as insure as every good insurance should. Well, and this is I not go further advice. than that. Yes, thank you for that. I I. I also believe in people um, having a garden and maybe having a little stored food and, uh, you know, knowing their neighbors really well and on and on and on. To me, to me, this is a period of time where the, with these disruptions, the more we can control what we can. I can't control a lot of stuff in the world, but I can I can gain a little self-control over over some of the things going on out there. Um, so, yeah, uh, very pleased. Uh, Sorry, to what, have what, you I, today. what I love, Chris, what What's I that? love about what you do, what I love about what you do it's actually all about empowerment and education and, and not having the answers, but asking the right questions and, and an understanding about preparation and, and, and not being shy about it. And that's really what it all comes down to in the days, educating yourself. Um, and I think you do an amazing job uh, and have helped so well, many thank people. Um, it's just incredible work. Well, thank you. Thank you. And um, particularly to people in, in Europe, um, I got to be honest, you know, when I saw, I just put out a piece on, you know, the UK is just out of veggies, right? Now, okay, that makes sense. You know, the, the, the greenhouses in the Netherlands didn't have enough gas to, couldn't afford the gas to grow peppers or whatever. But but you can feel like there's just all these different pressures coming on. And, and um, there is a there are really easy, relatively easy, positive solutions that get you through all of those, right? So there's to, even if you said, I'm, I'm worried about food insecurity, so I'm going to have a garden, that's great. But within about a year, you're going to be out there and the birds and the bees and having dirt on your fingernails. And you're going to go, this has its own benefits all on its own, right? You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a very, um, it's a very therapeutic thing to be involved in, you know, uh, in, in yeah. lots of ways. So I, I just think there's lots of ways we can be positive about this. But I do believe, Stephen, it's important for people to know what the context is so you can assess what the actual risks are. If you only read the newspapers, what did Mark Twain say? Um, if you don't read the newspapers, you're uninformed. But if you do read the newspapers, you are misinformed, right? Um, yeah. So there's a lot of misinformation out there right now. It's very bad. It is, yeah. And just on the farming thing, um, uh, I don't have green fingers. Um, um, I want to be that person. I have lots of clients who grow an insane amount of vegetables in their garden. And they have like these polytunnels and they're just very, very productive. And yeah. they give it to all their friends. But I have a client who is who runs a farm, an organic farm, and uh, my family we buy all our meats and uh, our chickens and our beef and our lamb from him and his farm. And I drive down there every few weeks and I, I fill my freezer, and um, and, uh, and and he does incredible work. His uh, farm is called Featherfield Farm. If anybody's interested in getting into organic farming, you never you won't find a more informed person. 
Uh, his name is Mark Hurst, and um, he's absolutely superb. He really cares about it. So shout out to Mark and all his great work he does. Yeah, so if you can't uh, have a garden, support somebody who does and does it well. Because there's a lot yeah, of really good... Yeah, and, and the people who do it well, it is a really technically demanding and physically demanding job to do. I mean, oh. to do it well is complicated, if not complex. Well, I pay more. Uh, so. I pay more for that beef and that chicken and that lamb. But once you try it and once you taste it, you don't go back. It is the most incredible quality food you've ever had. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's worth paying a little bit more for quality and feeding that to, 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 you know, to the family. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that. I really am, and and I hope other people take heed of that because it's important. When you come but, to Ireland, um, when you come to Ireland, Chris, we'll bring you down yeah. there and we'll show you the farm. Can I just say when? one thing? Okay. Uh, yeah. On that on that farming question, when I he, he took over the farm, uh, I think maybe 13 years ago, it was a regular farm, and they used to use normal phosphates and and uh, and, and chemicals to kind of increase the yield. And it destroys the 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 um the you know all the different variations of plants and stuff. And Mark and his lovely wife Ali, they uh, brought the farm back to an organic level. And over ten years, they did it. They did an audit at the beginning, and I think they had something like I'm going to say here maybe like thirty or forty species of insects per acre of land. And then after running as an organic farm, they had increased that number to like two hundred and fifty different species oh, of insects. Great. We're now habitating throughout the farm. Um, unbelievable, you know, incredible success. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Cause, um, one of my, one of the things that does cause me great alarm is the plummeting insect populations around the world. It's just, it should, it deserves a lot more attention than it actually gets. And, um, yeah. so I wish yeah. we had more, yeah. more people doing what, what you just described there. Um, and all right, well, we do have to... sorry, the whole human, human fertility, uh, oh, is, yeah, this is, is a very... huge issue right now too. Yeah, no, it's very much not good. Um, and, and this is, uh, it's taken a sudden drop of late, too, for other reasons that I, it's difficult to go into here on YouTube. But but it, but male sperm counts have declined 50% over the past 40 years. Yeah. And it's global. So it clearly speaks to an environmental something or other. And if we were an intelligent species, we would say, what have we been releasing into the environment that's new in the last 30, 40 years? And let's start taking it out, you know? Yeah. But we're not doing that. So. I have no idea. I'm, I'm like, I have no idea what's going on, to be honest, in that, that regard. But it is scary. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Ryan, just bring this up one last time. So, yeah, anybody who wants to, you're thinking, um, just give the people at Gold Core a call and you'll be really surprised because the thing they excel at is customer service. And as Stephen very importantly mentioned, nobody's um, uh, compensated by uh, the sale itself. It's, uh, it's that they are compensated to be help their help you and be great at customer service so check that out if you go through peak.fanic slash goldcore they'll treat you well tell them you heard about it here and you'll be treated double well um which is hard to do absolutely 100%. <laughs> um thank you so much chris i really appreciate the, uh, being on the show today yeah we'll do it again as, as events develop because i have a sense we'll have a lot of opportunities to talk over the coming time so thanks again and and um thank you so much for being available Stephen. really appreciate it Thanks so much. Thanks. See everybody. Yep. All right. Bye, everyone. We're going to uh, call it call it here, and um, we'll be back with you next time. And uh, there's lots of things breaking. So as things start to develop in the markets and uh, elsewhere, I'm just going to be firing up these live chats. You know, I started this one just sort of 
about an hour ago before it started, we decided to do this. So that's going to happen a lot. So just keep your notifications on and we will be parsing things as they come up. Thank you so much for being here. Loved all of your comments in your chats there. And if you have uh, anything you want me to know, leave it down in the comments after this is uh, the live parts over because the chatters get to participate in the live chat. But if you're watching it afterwards, leave a comment down there with me in the comment section and I'll see it. All right. Thanks very much, everybody. We will see you next time. Bye-bye.